This is an ABC podcast. When Claire Evans was a little girl, the internet felt like home. It was a place she knew, it was a place she felt safe in. Could we say the same for girls today? Welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Modern women. That sounds good. Claire L. Evans is author of Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the internet. She's an editor with Vice, a musician and co-founder of the pop group Yacht. And her book reaches back as far as Ada Lovelace, the woman who wrote the instructions for the first ever computer program and continues right to the present day. It's my absolute top read for this year so far. Claire joined me with a panel of great guests as part of an event organised by the University of New South Wales's Centre for Ideas. First, Claire took to the stage to give a talk. Tonight we're talking about women and the internet, and I happen to know a little bit about both those things, being A, a woman, and B, someone who kind of grew up on the internet. I'm just at that generation that straddled the World Wide Web, so I feel confident that we can get through this together. I grew up on the computer. My father worked for Intel, tech company, and we had computers. And I never felt when I was growing up that computers were like for boys or for girls any more than I thought the toaster or the television was for boys or for girls. It was an appliance in the home that happened to connect you to the outside world, if you were lucky, and offered many, many opportunities for exploration and fun. And when the World Wide Web came along, when I was a little bit older than this, well, that immediately became my country, too. I made my first website when I was nine. And I always felt like the web was my home. But something happened to me in my adulthood, and probably also something happened to the web, and that's that it stopped feeling that way. It stopped feeling like home, it stopped feeling fun, it stopped feeling safe for me as a human, but also, most importantly, for me as a woman. And so, a few years ago, I began to ask myself, had this delusion of my childhood that the computer was mine, had that always been a delusion? Had the computer ever really been my country? So I spent a couple of years and change trying to investigate if that was the case. I talked to a lot of women from throughout the history of computing, from the early days of the computing industry to the first days of the World Wide Web. And in finding them, I found a lineage of founding foremothers just amazing tech mothers and grandmothers that we can all learn to emulate. And I felt confident enough that, yes, the computer was absolutely my home. But I also found something else, something I didn't expect to find, and that is the seeds of a different future. And we'll get into what that means. I found myself so many times reading about a technology or an approach to technology that just had it been implemented at scale, at the right time in history, could have totally changed the world we live in today. So these women that I encountered writing the book and a few of them that I'm going to tell you about today, they're not just like rad role models, they're also these seeds of a possibility. They're these latent possibilities that are hidden within our own history. They're glimpses at another way of being, another way of treating one another online. So I want you to keep that in mind. Let me give you an example. So this is my friend Stacy Horn. In 1989, maybe, maybe 1990, she had just founded one of the earliest online communities in the world, a bulletin board system. So 
Before the World Wide Web, if you wanted to get online, you usually signed into a bulletin board system, which is essentially like a text window that you call on the phone and pay for by the hour, like a message board, if you will. Stacy's bulletin board system was based in New York City. There were a few before hers, most famously one on the west coast of the Bay Area of San Francisco called The Well, which was famously populated by a bunch of cyber hippies and cyber utopian type tech San Francisco people, the kind of people you read a lot about in tech history. Stacy was not one of those people. Um, she lived in Greenwich Village in New York. She was way too cynical for all of that stuff. So when she started her own BBS system, she called it the East Coast Hangout, or Echo. Now, she hosted Echo not out of like a garage in Palo Alto and not in some startup incubator with tons of venture capital money, but out of her own apartment in Greenwich Village on a stack of servers and modems surrounded by toy figurines and stacks of papers and photographs and all the ephemera of daily life. It was populated by a bunch of writers and artists, very New York 1990s, very Gen X-y, cynical, snarky, intellectual, totally the opposite of the kind of thing you would see online on the West Coast in San Francisco. And that made it really interesting in its own right. But what was much more interesting about Echo was that at a time in the late 1980s, early, early 1990s, when a significant population of the internet was male, like maybe 10 to 15% of the population of the internet was, were women, Echo managed to have 40% female users, which is pretty remarkable for its day. Because on most of the internet, if you were a woman and you signed on with a female username, you would immediately get harassed because you would be in the extreme minority, which meant that a lot of early female users of these early, early social spaces online would use gender-neutral or male pseudonyms in order to not be bothered, which meant that women effectively had no way to find one another online, no way to form community, no real home. But they did have a home on Echo. Echo was one of the first places on the internet to be at all hospitable to women. But Stacy didn't do that because she was trying to make a safe space for women, but she was thinking far, far ahead. And she was also a very snarky Gen Xer, so when asked about that in 1998, she said, bite me. <laughs> uh, I wanted more women on Echo to make it better. She wasn't trying to make some accommodation to a vulnerable population. She wasn't building a refuge. She knew that by having a more diverse user base on her system, she would have a much more interesting system that more people would want to dial into and participate in. You know, her business was making compelling online conversation, and she knew there's only one way to do that, and that was to make sure it wasn't all just techie dudes. And she had those female users because she was the only person actively trying to court them. She would do things like go and recruit people from non-technical spaces. She would go to concerts and art galleries and happenings in New York City and go to people that she thought seemed interesting and try to convince them to do the unthinkable and buy a modem and get online. She made service, access to her service free for women for an entire year. And if a woman left her service, she would call her personally on the phone and ask her what happened. She built private spaces on the network where women could talk to one another and report harassment if necessary. She taught Unix courses out of her apartment so that a lack of technical knowledge would not be limiting to new users of the internet. But her most simple strategy for making sure that she had more women online than any other place on the internet was actually much more simple. It was baked into the design of her service. So back in these days, online communities were moderated by hosts. 
much as we sometimes see moderators on places like Reddit, these were people who were sort of deputized users who were stakeholders in the community and who were responsible for guiding conversation and making sure everybody felt seen and everybody felt safe and everybody was being taken care of. These people were present in all the early social communities, but only Echo had what, what Stacey designed, which was that every single conversation on Echo had a male host and a female host. It's a simple thing, but Stacey understood that when women signed on to her service, sometimes signing on to the internet for the very first time in their lives, they would immediately see themselves represented, not just in the power structure of this place, but in the culture of it as well. Representation, it's an important thing. Echo still exists today, which makes it one of the oldest continuously operating online communities in the world because Stacy never sold, she never franchised, she never IPO'd. When the World Wide Web came along, she didn't have the money to create a web interface for her service. So she kept it in this text-based format today. It's quite remarkable. I, I like to say that it's millennial proof. But I show you this to make a point, which is that Stacy never got rich, she never got famous. Obviously, her service didn't become the Facebook of its day. It stayed pretty niche. But her accomplishment remains significant. She managed to create a diverse environment on an entirely male-dominated internet because she cared enough to make it so. And her community has stayed alive over all the twists and turns of the history of computing because she's cared enough to keep it that way. And that's a word that we really don't hear very much in relationship to technology, care. When we talk about care in the realm of tech, we often mean caring about something, like investing in, without promise of remuneration in the possibility of building something insanely great, as Steve Jobs would say, right? It's late nights hacking in the lab, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that stuff is great, of course. But Stacy's legacy represents to me caring of an entirely different sort not caring about, or not just caring about, but caring after, caring for, continuing that legacy of care beyond the exciting moment of the pitch or, or the initial round of seed funding and into this kind of tedious workaday reality of what technology really is once it has already been built. And I know that Echo can never realistically compete with its inheritors. It was always a really small thing. But I always come back to Stacy's story because it represents for me this great lost opportunity in tech. Like, what if the architects of our present-day social networks, the ones that did take over the world, what if they had invested that same amount of care into the work that they did? What if they had made the same efforts at inclusion and mutual respect and representation and outreach that Stacy did? Not because she felt like it was going to make her rich or anything, but because she felt like it was the right thing to do. What if those values, what if that approach was integral to the way that we built things rather than just patched on after the fact, after people have already been hurt? Do you think I would be standing here telling you that the internet stopped feeling like my home? I don't think so. And that's the thing, Stacy isn't an outlier, because if you're looking for women in the history of computing, it actually really helps to look in those places where users, people, are especially cared for. To look in those places where form gives way to function, where capital gives way to community, where metrics give way to meaning. I'll give you another example. This is another friend of mine, Dame Wendy Hall. 
She was given the female equivalent of a knighthood for her contributions to computer science, but when this photo was taken, she was but a lowly lecturer at the University of Southampton in the mid-1980s, and she was completely besotted by this emerging concept called hypertext. Now, when we talk about hypertext now, if we know about it, it usually is in relationship to the World Wide Web, right? The World Wide Web is built in hypertext markup languages. We click on hypertext links. It's something that we really associate with the web. But before the web came along, there was a decade of research, scholarly and otherwise, on the field of hypertext, which really was just the study and practice of connecting ideas, images, and multimedia documents together in closed computer systems through links. It was the study of turning all of that information that computer memory was beginning to make accessible into useful, applicable human knowledge. So Wendy had been turned on to this concept through this very anachronistic British computer system called the Doomsday Project, which was a countrywide project funded by the BBC in the 1980s to digitally document British life, a sort of time capsule. And it was released in 1986 as two laser discs. What was interesting about this was not so much the material, but the way the material was navigated. The discs had all this interesting multimedia material, like virtual walks through the beautiful British countryside and scenes of beautiful British cities. maps and, and first-person accounts that were submitted by school children, all this rich, really human material. But what knocked Wendy out about these discs wasn't the material, but the way that you could point and click through it. So years before the web sort of taught us how to navigate by pointing and clicking, this was hugely novel to move around following visual cues and click on the thing that you wanted to see. And Wendy understood really quite quickly that this way of navigating information was going to completely change the way people understood computers. It was going to make computers accessible to entirely new demographics of people. It was going to be interesting to not just computer scientists. It was going to be something people were going to welcome into their lives. It felt downright revolutionary to her, and she wanted to be part of it. Unfortunately, her colleagues at Southampton told her that there was no future for her in her department or in computer science if she kept on with this hypertext stuff. Thankfully for history, she did not listen to them. Um, She actually went to the States, where hypertext was kind of more of a thing, and decided to dedicate all of her efforts to building a computer system that would make it possible to navigate information from library archives much in the way that she had navigated information on this BBC disk computer system. By 1989, she had led a team to build an entire system called Microcosm. Now, just as the World Wide Web would do later, Microcosm made all of this digital information accessible and dynamic and intuitive and easily navigable for people who weren't experts in computer science. It was, in fact, not at all like the web because it was much better than the web. Now, the way the web works is that links are contextual, so they're embedded in documents. When you see a hyperlink on the web, it's connected to that piece of information on that page, which means that when the destination of a link is taken down, we get what's called a 404 error, right? The link is said to rot, which happens a great deal on the web. I think the average lifespan of a website is about nine years, so the web is full of these empty spaces. You know, it's a bummer to come across a 404 error, but what it really means is that that little piece of information about what connected two ideas together, some meaningful connection that somebody made between two things, that information is gone forever. And that's a huge loss for our culture because that's metadata. That's really meaningful information. It's really core to the essence of what hypertext was all about. Wendy's system, 
microcosm was structured completely differently. So the links were not embedded in documents, they were overlaid on top of documents, which meant that they never made any kind of structural change to the material. They were sort of this transparent overlay. Effectively, what that meant is that a link could have more than one destination, a link could go to multiple places, different users could layer different links on top of the same material, depending on the sort of level of interest and aptitude that those users had. It was a system that was completely built around the idea of learning. It was a system that helped you understand the material and navigate the material, and it valued that really important piece, that piece about the connections between things. The nature of those connections is what was meaningful. There were a lot of systems like this that were built around the time that Wendy was working in the late 1980s. Almost all of them had women in senior positions, if not entirely at the lead. There's a lot of reasons for that. Primarily, hypertext was just a more convivial field for people who were coming from different backgrounds. It wasn't all hardcore classical computer science people. It was anyone who was interested in the nature of making connection and meaning on screen. So at the early hypertext conferences, Wendy tells me, there were the literati, there were poets and historians and humanists and really anyone who was interested in what it meant to connect things on a screen, what it meant to navigate information in this kind of rich, intertextual, multimedia way. But they all had this one thing in common, which is that they all cared about the nature of the meanings of the connections between things, why things were connected. That was what the community was all about. In fact, it was so much what it was all about that the very first time the World Wide Web was presented in a public forum in the United States at the Hypertext 1991 conference, everybody there, all of the scholars who had been working in the field of hypertext, they took one look at this system that Tim Berners-Lee, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, by the way, he got the male equivalent of a damehood for his contributions to computer science. They all looked at this system and they thought, this is stupid, this is terrible. His paper wasn't accepted. He was forced to lug this $10,000 NextCube computer all the way from CERN to San Antonio, where this conference was held, to demonstrate the World Wide Web on his own dime because nobody wanted him there. They took one look at this system and they saw the links are contextual, they only go in one direction, like, this is never going to work. What good is a hypertext system if the links are going to break? And anecdotally, I will tell you this, the demo period of the hypertext 1991 conference, and this is like really in the historical weeds, but it's my favorite thing ever, the demo period of this conference was held after all the papers and the panels and all the la-di-da of the conference itself had happened, on the floor of this hotel where it was being hosted at the same time as the cocktail hour. And because it was Texas, and because it was the 90s, and because it was the summer, the cocktail hour consisted of a large margarita fountain in the courtyard. And so one amazing detail of this photograph is that there is a literal margarita right here, salt rim and all, which means that this woman most likely wandered in from outside, like one and a half margaritas deep, to take a look at this World Wide Web thing, and was like, hmm, no. And I just tell you that just to give you a sense of how out of the blue this World Wide Web concept seemed to people, how completely meaningless and dumb it was. Now, of course, we all know what happened, right? I mean, within a year of this photo being taken, the web was slowly becoming the global standard. In 1992, one year later, 
Tim Berners-Lee published the very first image to ever be clicked in a web browser. Do we know what this is? A photo of four women, uh, a doo-wop band called Les Horribles Cernettes, who were a group of female employees at the CERN who sang like satirical songs about life at the research lab. And this is completely also unrelated to anything important about this history, but I just want to give you a teaser of what this band is like. Can we pump it up? Oh, yeah. I feel your screen with hearts and roses. That's a crane supercomputer that they're sitting on, by the way. Isn't that so wonderful? Um, I highly recommend you go dig up their videos on YouTube. They were actually some of the earliest sort of CGI music videos ever. They're so good. Anyway, of course, after this, obviously, came everything else. And by 1994, Tim Berners-Lee was giving the keynote at the Hypertext Conference. And all the other old-school, much more sophisticated, much more complex hypertext systems, like Wendy's Microcosm, well, they were long gone. Now... That happens a lot in tech, obviously. And there's no way for us to know if something like microcosm could have been as important to us as the World Wide Web is today. Just as there's no way of knowing if had Stacey Horn been given a lot of money at the exact right moment of time, if something like Echo could have replaced Facebook, for example. But that doesn't stop me from dreaming about it. And that's what I mean about the sort of different futures that these women represent. Their stories really vividly, to me, represent how many other paths have laid before us throughout this history, and how many other paths lay before us still if we just look for them. Because nothing in tech or otherwise has ever happened in a vacuum, you know? Things don't fall from the sky. They emerge along a continuum of ideas. And tech history, like history with a capital H, is so often about solitary geniuses. We like the simplicity of those narratives, you know? We like thinking about people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Mark Andreessen. And yeah, of course, those people are remarkable people, amazing people, but they have never been alone. <laughs> They've always been surrounded by other people and other ideas, because making big things requires big communities, and that is what is so amazing about technology. But it's also what makes it so difficult for us to acknowledge where things really come from and where things might still lead. And when we don't see the multiplicity of all of those stories, we just leave out a huge part of what was really happening, and we make it so much harder for all of those other, more complicated, more interesting, arguably, versions of the story to work their magic on the present and help us solve the problems that we face today. Computing has never been a boys' club. It's actually, for most of its history, been understood to be women's work. For 200 years, computers, and calculators for that matter, were people. They were the female, mostly, bodies and minds that did the computational work that undergirded the development of the scientific age. And during the Second World War, when human computers were hired to program the new mechanical computers that were replacing them, those first people that were doing that job, the first programmers, were, of course, also women. And after the war, those same women led the development of what was then called automatic programming, which was just the idea that these programmers should be able to step above sort of the brute machine level of code and start thinking at higher and higher levels of abstraction, which led to nothing less than the development of programming languages as we understand them today, and the evolution of programming into a symbolic, world-changing art. 
In the 60s, women were half of the workforce in computing, and they earned 40% of computer science degrees at American universities. I don't know the stats for Australia, I should have looked that up, I'm afraid. Until about the mid-80s. And since then, the industry has found all kinds of cunning ways to edge women out of the picture. You know, wage disparity, lack of mentorship, lack of opportunities to ascend the ranks, a shift in the professional credentials necessary to get a job as a programmer. And technology historians, much more smart than me, uh, have suggested that the professionalization of the computing industry is what led to its masculinization. And that has sort of led to this understanding of computing as being a male-dominant field, an understanding, a misunderstanding, that has been perpetuated by marketing. So we have this assumption now that, you know, men sitting at the table doing the real work while women stand in the kitchen is somehow natural to computing, but of course it's not. I'll say it again, it's not, and a lot of us here are proof. So if you remember nothing else from this talk, like nothing about hypertext or early BBS systems, I wouldn't blame you. But do remember this, that if there is a boys club that dominates Silicon Valley and the greater tech infrastructure, it is an anachronism. Like, it's really a deviation from the historical norm. Look at this. this. These photos were taken by an operations manager at a Bell Labs data center in 1970. Look at these women. This was normal. This was the way it was. This misconception that we struggle against today, that technology is somehow for men, it took a generation to create it, and it will probably, I'm afraid to say, take a generation to undo it, to say nothing of breaking it open even further and further. But I firmly believe that in a technological world, technological history is important. And if women and girls are able to see themselves in the DNA of our planet's most profoundly transformative technology, then we can more easily see ourselves in its future. And I study history, so I don't know a lot about the future. People are always asking me, I'm like, I don't know. Um, but there is one thing that I know for sure, and that is if we are going to survive the future, we need all the help we can get. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. Take a seat. Living proof. <laughs> exactly. One, two, three, four, five women on stage. That technology is by <laughs> and for women. Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell and I'd like to introduce Sandy Ong. She is currently studying a Bachelor of Mechatronics Engineering and uh, also a Master's at the same time of Biomedical Engineering at the University of New South Wales. She's also president of a vibrant student society that's linking universities and students all around the world really now, I think. Mm -hmm. Robogirls, she's president of the UNSW team, um, really reaching out to thousands of schoolgirls. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Ginger Gorman, award-winning and widely published social justice journalist and radio broadcaster. Her new book, Troll Hunting, emerged from her own horrific, truly horrific experience of being trolled for being a woman in the public sphere. And she's spoken extensively now. You would have seen her on the telly and heard her on the radio talking about the impact and the, the kind of psychology and mechanics of cyber hate. Thanks for being here. And uh, we also have 
just three weeks in the country, so we're very delighted to have you with us. Uh, Alex Zafiraklu, she's a cultural anthropologist. She's Professor of Cybernetics at the Australian National University's pretty brand new 3A Institute, uh, which she joined this year after 15 years at Intel Corporation in the US. Amongst other roles, she was appointed Principal Engineer in Social Science within in Intel's Internet of Things division. She's worked on autonomous vehicles she's worked on the Internet of Things, she's worked on digital homes and much else besides, and she has 11 patents to her name. Please welcome them. Claire, I'm just going to kick off with you because I was yeah. both entirely moved by this book Thank you. and entirely enraged by it. <laughs> and as a woman in tech, even I didn't know all of these stories. This incredible history where women were at the beginning of every aspect of the internet. Were you enraged by it as you were writing it? I think I can't keep up that much rage for that long. It took three years to write the book, and if I'd been angry the whole time, I don't think I would have made any progress. But yes, of course. I mean, it's more like befuddlement, frankly. I mean, I have read a lot of tech histories. I'm kind of a nerd about that specific sort of genre of history. I love reading about the history of computing. And there's really like nine stories that we hear. We, you know, we hear the story about Steve Jobs going to hire the guy from Pepsi. We hear about Bill Gates. We hear about, you know, these sort of early chip makers. We hear about all of these people. And this, yet there's so many other stories. And it's not just that like women are unjustly pushed out. It's that these like great stories aren't being told. Like as a writer, as a storyteller, it just seems like a great missed opportunity. I sort of felt like I'd hit the jackpot, frankly. I mean... Obviously, it's awful that these stories have been excluded, but it's like, good Lord, like what material? There's so much there, and there's so much more that I, hadn't, I didn't have space to include. I mean, I think my book, I hope that my book can be sort of the beginning of a much larger sort of re-excavation of our history. Mm -hmm. I get, the more I study history, the more infinite I feel that it is. You know, I feel like the future is very short. It's getting shorter and shorter some days, but the future is vast. And if, if not in my discipline, then in many others. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've given talks, people come up to me afterwards and say, it's so crazy, the same thing happened in blank, you know? Same thing happened in medicine, the same thing happened in video art, the same thing happened in my discipline. So these are these patterns that are not specific to tech necessarily. They're really quite universal patterns. And once you can identify them, then history is yours for the rediscovering. So just Exciting. to put back to you, when I was doing engineering, I was an undergrad student in the early 90s at Monash Uni, and uh, at the same time, this fantastic collective called the VNS Matrix, who were Australian, mm -hmm. put out what was called the Cyber Feminist Manifesto. And here I was trying to solve differential equations and do circuit diagrams. And I just want to read you a bit of this yes. Cyber, Feminist, Cyber Feminist Manifesto. This is the sort of polite bit. <laughs> without the C word. We are the virus of the new world disorder, rupturing the symbolic from within, saboteurs of the big daddy mainframe. The clitoris is a direct line to... Oh, there's a C word. <laughs> the clitoris is a direct line to the matrix, the VNS matrix. Yeah, it's the best. Actually, I mean, that manifesto was not explicitly the starting point for this book, but it's the thing that made me feel like, okay, this is going to be fun. So did the, did the, their vision, though, was that actually digital life, the virtual life, could help us all, men and women, and everyone who, who identifies as neither man or woman, to transcend our biology, to transcend yeah. the sort of sexism that we experience by virtue of our biology. Did cyber feminism work? Did it leave a dent? 
Well, I think a lot of the earliest people to understand what the internet represented had the same idea. Not just the cyber feminists, but a lot of the early sort of cyber culture writers mm. had this illusion, unfortunately, that the internet was going to allow us to connect mind to mind in a new civilization of the mind. And we were, nev were never going to have to worry about, you know, class and race and ability or any of the things that sort of separate us or divide us in the real world. We could just connect as people. Obviously, that's not the case because we bring everything with us into cyberspace. We are still human beings in cyberspace, as I'm sure yeah. you can talk to you about <laughs> for a long time. So I think the cyber feminists certainly kick things off. But I think we sort of I think once the Venn diagram of real life and virtual life became a circle, then, you know, it was very difficult to sort of put anything, any utopian aspiration. But on. there's points in your book where men try really hard to cut women out. Yeah. Like that story where those women um, spent all night trying to work out the equation for this ballistics trajectory. Yeah. And one of the women figured it out, how she could get this computer to do it. Then there was a huge media event the next day. All the photos were taken, but the women who did the equations successfully were cut out. Yeah. And yeah. they're not, I mean, I just found that story amazing. And like, it made me livid, like absolutely livid that these brilliant women were not in the photos. It's a combination of things too. It's not just that women were being ignored. Yes, women were being ignored. But also the job that they were doing wasn't seen as important. It was really seen as this kind of secretarial afterthought. People didn't understand that programming would be as important as building hardware for a really long time. They thought programming was just like, you know, telephone operators, not, not work. And so the women that were doing these equations were seen as doing this kind of administrative work that wouldn't be. And it's really not until like these women began telling their own stories and we started to understand in the context of the present day, oh wow, programming actually is the, is the thing, that then we went back and realized that these, what these women was, were doing was so significant. Yeah. So I just want to get a sense from each of you uh, who have joined the panel to give us a sense of why you gravitated towards technology and a life in technology. Sandy, as an engineer, who's become really active in encouraging young girls and women to get engaged with robotics and engineering, what connected you to technology? I think I really liked just the fundamentals of technology. So in high school, I was very into like maths and science. But I think what I liked about engineering was that it always, it's a field that's always evolving. There's always something new. And that's, yeah, that's why I fell in love with it, I guess. Why in the middle of doing your studies have you also decided to become really active about pulling the next generation of girls, high school girls, into your world? So what I found during my studies was that it wasn't until I think yet halfway through my degree, I was able to reflect and I realised that like all throughout high school and primary school, I did not know the opportunity to do engineering like even existed. And I just happened to be lucky enough to have a dad who's in engineering and that encouraged me to pursue it. But I thought it's a shame that there are so many young children out there who don't realize or they don't even acknowledge the fact that engineering is something that is for them and it's something really fun. It's so <laughs> even now you're saying that high school girls are getting the message that tech is, is not for them or not something to engage their lives in. I think the messages are actually quite a lot better now, um, especially in younger years. Now STEM or STEAM, they call it, is incorporated. Which is A for art. A for art, yeah. <laughs> Science, technology, engineering, maths and... Art. Art. <laughs> Since that's now being incorporated in the syllabus, there's been a big push in the younger years to encourage to start learning about STEM and start learning about like different 
engineering concepts. However, I find that through teaching, like it is in the older year kids, they were a bit, a bit more like me when I was in high school. I did not know anything about engineering. I didn't even know that like people computed. Like I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I just thought things just like appeared on my screen when I went on in the computer and I was like, yep, yeah, cool. This is the way it is. It's magic. magic. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've got, a, there's lots to talk about, about, well, we promote the whole industry to girls and women and then they get the hell out of there when they realise that it's actually not inclusive of them, their whole selves. But Alex, what about yourself? What pulled you into the realm of intel as yeah. a cultural anthropologist in particular? Yeah, I do not have an engineering degree. I have a PhD in cultural anthropology. And I started off graduate school looking at straight edge kids in the 1990s. So youth that were um, describing themselves as rebelling by not drinking and smoking. And there were these large communities of teenagers and young adults that were writing zines and trading them back and forth. So I had this interest in material culture and in communications, and then did my PhD on mobile phones because those were, this was the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, just beginning to come up. And the idea of the death of distance, Francis Karen Cross wrote this, this book that said, we're all gonna sit on the beach with laptops and there's gonna be no distance anymore, which I thought was ridiculous. But I was also interested in how do we connect to one another, how do we make connections between people, and how do we do that with material culture, with stuff, and with technology. So I did a dissertation on that, and realized halfway through that wasn't enough just to describe these systems or these technologies, but that I wanted to be in a place where I could make change in the world, and where, well, I didn't realize this at the time, I wanted to work with other people. And then I got to Intel, and realized there were a lot of people who were super smart and super smart in ways that I wasn't super smart. And that was the most exciting thing, being able to um, build something together that I couldn't build by myself. Because anthropology uh, then, and I think even now, it tends to be a very lonely field. You go out and you do some work and you come back and you write it up and that's it. And working in technology was very different. It was, what can you bring to the table and you and you and what can we make together? Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your impressions of, you know, my experience has been that many women in computer science and in technology, in engineering, don't want to be identified as a woman in that field, right? Because that feels like exceptionalism of some sort. No, no, I'm just an engineer like the blokes. Mm -hmm. But do you get a sense, and I'd be interested in all your thoughts, mm. that women do technology differently, mm. make technology, design technology in different ways by virtue of their socialization as women? Yes, I do. And this is not very scientific of me because I don't have a big study, but I can talk about my own experiences and the amazing women that I've worked with in tech. Um, and it goes back to the point, Claire, that you were making earlier, and I had a very visceral reaction when you <laughs> said this, about Stacey Horn. Stacey Horn, yeah. Stacey Horn creating a community of care and that mm -hmm. she was doing care work and my eye twitched and I thought, oh, why is it that women get labeled with caring for others in ways that we do not culturally expect men to care. Yeah. That's changing a little bit. So it was interesting to me to hear you say, oh, well, she did this because she cared, and this, and I just went back to all my social theory on gender <laughs> and caring, and it freaked out. Well, in that moment, yeah. what did you react to? I reacted to the idea that type of extra 
emotional and caring labor that women have to yeah. do in order to make the world go round, in order to make capitalism work, in order to make other people's lives work by taking on extra labor was something that Stacey was doing. And in the end, the values of the market were not such that she gets rewarded for that, yeah. right? You get rewarded for creating technologies that bring in more and more money. Mm -hmm. But getting back to like, do women create technology differently? What I've been impressed with is the ability of the women I've known who are computer scientists, who are electrical engineers, particularly anyone that comes out of MIT actually, are really good at thinking not just about, here's a problem, how do I solve it? But what is the problem that we're trying to solve and why is this the right problem? And are there multiple ways of solving it? And I think that, and understanding kind of the technical, the social implications of what they're doing, why might this one be good versus that one, is something that I do think, in my experience, I've seen more consistently with women computer scientists and engineers than with men. My so thinking about technology small. in a social context, thinking about the users. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. And you made a point about how care, if you want to call it, was baked into that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's actually something that the e-safety commissioner, Julie Immengrant, is always talking about, that we can't bolt this safety stuff on later and retrofit it later. This, you know, safety that makes these products good to use and safe to use so you don't get killed, for example, because of Facebook Live. It has to be there from the start. Right. And if yeah. those companies are not going to do it on their own, it needs to be legislated that they must have a duty of care to the public. So what interests me, Ginger Gorman, is that you, as a, a target yeah. of vicious trolling, your family was targeted, you were targeted, that you took it upon yourself to care enough to talk to trolls, to find out their motivations, yeah. to understand why they did what they did. So now, why did you I mean, you're asking the question about why were we interested in tech. I was never interested in tech, and I'm still not really that interested <laughs> in it. I um, can't really scroll on my Mac. But oh. you're, you're a journalist who uses technology I do in very savvy it. ways all the time. I do, but I never kind of you know, do I know the difference between hardware and software? That's Not right, really. You know. no. But I guess... So There's <laughs> other women to do um, that. Uh, look, I mean, I've always been interested in humans, right? So my family and I were targets of an international hate campaign in 2010, essentially because of stuff I had broadcast and published uh, with the ABC, who, and I worked, worked for the ABC for a long time. And I mean, that was terrifying. I really was scared for the safety of my children, and uh, the ABC didn't help me. The police didn't help me we were really alone and I did you know have this moment of thinking like um, did I just put my kids lives at risk because of my job as a journalist but then once you know that had died down about 18 months later I did start thinking like why would you send someone you don't know a death threat. And at the same time, a lot of our ABC colleagues were getting like beheaded women in their inboxes, like pictures, rape threats, death threats, some of them scared to go home. And the same kind of stuff was happening in the States, especially to women in the media who get attacked three times as much as their male counterparts. So um, I mean, what you were describing there, we were just talking about some sort of utopian cyber feminist Yeah, vision. this is like the opposite. The opposite. The, the ultimate dystopia. Absolutely. And it is a, it is a misogynistic uh, white supremacist, hate-filled environment, these guys that I have spent five years talking to, they are what I call predator trolls. So they are doing real-life harm, psychological, physical, both. They are kind of like the Christchurch killer. These are the sorts of dudes. Look, 
I and you got very close to them. I did get very close to them. So I mean, <laughs> I went in so naive. I mean, I would never do this in this way because I didn't understand how dangerous they were. And I mean, I just put a call out on the internet, like I want to talk to vicious trolls, <laughs> you know. And I mean, because it's a culture that they are proud of, and because they bizarrely feel really marginalised. They feel that no one's listening.、Um, they wanted to talk to me, but I went in to talk to them with radical empathy. I was just trying to understand them. I really wanted to listen and hear them and just find out why. And so I left a lot of、uh, the journalistic protocols behind, and I formed quite strong relationships with them because I really needed to understand it because they are doing so much harm. Where did you put your fear? In those conversations, because this has taken its toll. I mean, yeah, like I, I was afraid. I mean, like I went to meet Mark, who is a psychopath, and I didn't know that he got people killed. I just went to meet him in a hotel. Sorry, he got people. He、killed. gets people killed. Yeah, he incites people to suicide. And he's a major feature. He's of part your of a yeah. He's part of a big international syndicate. These are like bikey gangs, right? So they have presidents and vice presidents, and they all know each other. I just went to meet him in a hotel with a recorder. I didn't tell anyone where I was. I didn't understand how dangerous they were at that stage, and I mean, I don't know whether it's stupidity or bravery. I'm not sure. People say you're so brave, and actually, I think probably it was naivety now. And I would never do it the way I did it again. But that is also why the book tells that story. And I also think, bizarrely, as a woman, they told me stuff they would never normally. Tell anybody. They're vulnerabilities. So it's very, yeah. I mean, like I was their hate match, right? So I'm Jewish. I'm a white woman. I like everything they hate. I'm a journalist. I'm in a mixed race marriage. Like I'm all the things. Left wing, SJW they call it, social justice warrior. Weirdly, because I was so open hearted and listening, yeah, they told me all kinds of stuff. Which、uh, you know, did you meet any women trolls? There are women trolls, but in these groups, they use a platform called Internet Chat Relay, which is a very techie platform. It's an old platform, but it's quite hard to use if you don't know what you're doing, and that's kind of a device to keep women out. It's a very misogynist community, that white supremacist outright community.、Yeah. So the guys in my book are mostly young white men, but recently I did a story with ABC Landline about extreme vegans who were attacking farmers and like animals are getting killed and all kinds of. Things and the farmers are losing their livelihoods, and that's all women. <laughs> like most of that is happening. That's a, a, co- a new cohort. It's happening on Facebook and Instagram. So they definitely are women trolls. I just don't know as much about them. That's probably another book. Did you? <laughs> Ooh, I which I will not write. <laughs> Did you get was- close to understanding? Because in this conversation about women and the internet, what you came across was a community that is. Making the internet feel like a very threatening and dangerous、yeah. space for women, and feminism hasn't stopped that. Some would say that it might have triggered it, whatever disaffection that、yeah. that feminism might have cultivated in these men. Did you get a sense of what has triggered it? Yes.、Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's complicated because it's not one thing, but there was a couple of things. So, it was hard to wrap my ha- head around at first. But these guys really do feel marginalised, right? I know that they are young white men, but they come from really tough social and socio-economic circumstances. So, for example,、um, you know, the guy I become really good friends with, who's a right-wing, Trump-loving, woman-hating, gun-loving. 
president. A genuine friend him. now? Yeah, he's a really good friend of mine now. I know, I mean, people write to me about this, like, how could you? But he really helped me so much with the book. I can't even tell you. There's a dedication to him at the back. And he became a lot kinder by the end of it. And he also said to me, thank you, because I no longer hate women. you therapist? No, but um, he helped me a lot as well. And he helped me see a lot of things about the world, which I didn't understand. So he, he had a really violent alcoholic mother. And his father also starved him. So, you know, you can understand that a kid like that, who's completely left alone on the internet, and the internet parented him, like he was, he was on the cesspits of the internet, like so Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, these exact places where the Christchurch killer was, imbibing all this hatred from Tiny with no parents at all, right? No parenting. This is a really common story, this story. And then gets spat out as an internet troll later and thinks that his rightful place at the top of the food chain is being dislodged by women, by people of colour, by people with disabilities, by LGBTIQ people. So they police the internet with themselves at the centre. And they are trying to marginalise all those groups and regain what they consider to be their rightful place. And feminism is part of that for them. I mean, that's the thing I found really intractable, like the misogyny really at some points made me feel really hopeless. Although this guy doesn't hate women anymore. He did tell me he started dating a woman and I was like, lucky her, you know, but anyway. <laughs> so I'm interested in, in all of your reflections on Ginger's story and, and what you see as your role in changing that phenomenon. Do we feel empowered to shift that culture? How do we do it? Sandy, do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, you've grown up as a digital native. Online interactions probably have defined your life from day dot. Yeah. Are you mindful of the way in you, which you occupy those spaces because of that? Um, like, as a woman? Yeah. If I have to be honest in my day-to-day -day life, I don't really feel that way, but I think what's really important about this is that it's about like creating a culture where everyone feels inclusive. Mm. So I feel like, I mean, if I'm able to feel like I'm a part, like I'm just like everyone else, if I'm not marginalized, I think that's, that's really the aim at the end of the day. I feel like, for example, like at my own workplace, I think there's about six females in a small team of like 40 engineers. So, you know, we're a little bit of a margin, like in the marginalized group, but I've never ever felt like I am like ever left out mm. because I think in the end of the day, yeah, in the end of the day, it's I think it's really about making, creating like an environment where everyone feels equal and after that, like the numbers will come. Mm. Just thinking about that question I asked Alex about, do you think that women in technology change the way in which technology gets made? I think I do. Like I think... The reason why diversity is so important in the technology field is that we need people with essentially like we're a society that's creating products for ourselves, right? So if the makers of whatever technology it be, the internet apps or whatever it be, if it's not being created by like a representation of the society that it's for, then I feel like there the users, like some users may feel marginalised. Yeah, I mean, Alex, we've seen that in relation to the way in which the algorithms that define so many of the, mm. the platforms that we're using today, they have racial bias written into them because they're machine learning algorithms, right? Yep. So they're learning from the data that we feed them. So they're sexist, they're yep. racist, yep. 
They're prejudiced in all sorts of ways because yes. they're learning from the real world. They're learning from a particular subset of the real world that they're getting fed. They're not learning from the entire world. They're learning from a subset of it that is not representative of the entire world. So how do we pay attention to that in the making of technology? Mm. Well, I think you mentioned I just got here to this country three weeks ago <laughs> and I started a new position at ANU in a research institute called 3A, which is around thinking about cyber-physical systems and artificial intelligence and how do we begin to understand as we are living in a world in which people and institutions and very complex computing systems that include various forms of artificial intelligence, sensors, computational, computation that can learn and that can make decisions and that can, uh, is hooked up to actuators that can create change in the physical world. How do we begin to put the right people into how we design those systems, how we build those systems, how we deploy them, how we maintain them over time, and how we decommission them. And part of that is not having one type of person, not just having people who are trained in machine learning or computer science or in engineering, but having psychologists and lawyers and policymakers and anthropologists and sociologists all contributing to figure out what are the right questions that we need to be asking about the goals that we have for those types of systems, whether they are self-driving cars or new ways of interacting with various services they have or interacting online and offline with people who should be seeing the whole of us and not attacking us as they were. Yeah, Claire, now. you've heard Ginger's story. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> multitudes of stories about the way in which the internet has become a dystopian space for many yes. people. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, talking about the utopian history of the internet. I mean, I want to be clear that people thought the internet would be a utopia in the same way that we always approach new technologies and new possibilities with this sort of guileless belief that it's going to be a replacement or, or, or a fix for something that we have today. I mean, I think I see the same kind of sort of the same kind of assumptions being made about like VR and blockchain. Like we always think the next thing is going to fix our problem. But of course, there are no technological solutions to human problems. And what we're talking about are social problems, human problems, yes. human being problems. And I think as the more that we prioritize and understand that software and its interrelationship with hardware is, you know, a set of systems that interact with the human world and with human mm. beings, the more we understand that those human beings are actually part of that system and, and feed back into that system in unpredictable ways, but ways that we can try to anticipate if we actually care about what humans mm. do we, and are. We created it, we can fix it. <laughs> I mean, that's and the that's hope. Ginger. Well, I just, uh, just to back up what Claire's saying, really, like it's a tool. Like I heard Malcolm Turnbull, uh, when he was still Prime Minister, speaking at Safer Internet Day at Parliament House, and it was this great big gathering with everyone important there, and he said, the internet's making everyone more aggressive. And I actually almost started laughing because I was like, have you seen yourself in Parliament lately, mate? Like, these problems are not created on the internet. The internet is not making people aggressive. Like if there wasn't misogyny and racism and ableism and all these other kinds of hatred in society, it wouldn't be online. Like we've got to fix that stuff in society. The tool can insist... But a technology can enable that to be distributed. I mean, it's a bit like the argument, well, guns don't kill people. No, people but... Kill people. No, guns do kill people. Yeah, guns do kill people, but tools can insist in being used in particular ways and I think you know if you have a white supremacist view you can you can hook up with other white supremacists and it's like a megaphone yes but fundamentally we are the problem the humans are the problem 
Look, I just want to wrap and say that from my experience that many of the questions that we discuss as um, women in technology, many of my male peers who were doing engineering alongside me really felt the same way, that there was a sort of, there was a whole generational shift and these themes were all relevant to all of us, male, female, uh, and in between. So I feel like it's a universal conversation for all of us to have and share together. Let's come back to some of your thoughts about solutions, but I'd love to take some questions. Thank you so much. Go for it. Firstly, thank you very much for tonight. I've learned a lot. I work in technology with a startup company, so thank Brad. you. Your um, insight has been intriguing. I just want to ask a question, I guess, of all of you coming back to, Ginger, your point initially about um, making sure that we are developing technologies that care. So, Claire, you mentioned, you know, that that was something that Stacey um, was very important, important part of what it was for her development. I work, like I said, I work in a technology company. So if we're developing um, programs and platforms and products to, to you know, market out there and we're developing that obviously with a monetary value because that's what business is about and that's what you want mm -hmm. is you want to be able to you know, gain money. I guess the thing that for me that I would love to have a bit more of an insight in is how do you think that our political element um, can play and guide this towards that care mentality and mm. being able to develop that? Well, so the law firm, Morris Blackburn, is actually yes. campaigning for a legislated duty of care because at the moment, particularly with the big tech platforms, right, they pay we, you know, they don't pay any tax, they make billions of dollars from our data and they have no duty of care to the public. It's wild, isn't it? It's absolutely it's amazing. Wild. Like, imagine if this was a car company, right? Putting cars on the roads with no seatbelts, people getting killed, and everyone was like, oh, no worries. Great, go for it. Like, I went to Facebook about a year ago, and I said, Facebook Live is not safe, and people are getting killed and raped on really similar platforms, you know, and they said, yes, it is. And then we had the Christchurch massacre on Facebook Live. And then they say, oh, sorry, we're going to fix it. I mean, they've been bleeding about fixing cyber hate since 2006. And the reason they don't is because it doesn't suit their revenue model. Like basically when there's a cyber hate event, people pile on, they make more money. So it's very clear to me that they are not gonna, these companies are not gonna do it on their own. Um, and Have they so, said that to you, that they don't close, close it down, or are you implying that they don't close it down because it doesn't suit their business model? The Pew Centre did a massive, Pew Centre in the States did a massive canvassing of 1,500 tech experts across the globe, and this is what came up over and over again, this point that it doesn't suit their revenue model. No. So um, they don't want to. That's not what they, like, that's not what Mia Garlic from Facebook said to me when I went to meet her. In fact, I'm not allowed to tell you anything that <laughs> she said because I had to sign a six-page non-disclosure form. Um, so this is... Nothing right. like radical transparency. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I sat in the Senate hearings into cyberbullying and I watched the representatives of these companies obfuscate every single question from our Australian senators, the people who run our country, about how they're dealing with cyber hate. So is that okay? Are we happy to, in a democratic country have these companies that have a user base that are bigger than China and India put together. They are nation states. Are we happy? But they have no obligation. They have no duty of care to the public. So really, I think it's probably about legislation from our politicians. Uh, they are starting to get that. Thank you so much for being part of Sydney Science Festival. And thank, thank our you, panel. Natasha. Now look what they've gone and done. To make reality of imagination. So that people have time to think. 
Thanks to Claire L. Evans, author of Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the internet. Journalist Ginger Gorman, who's author of Troll Hunting. Alexandra Zafira Glue, who's professor of cybernetics at ANU's 3A Institute. And also Sandy Ong, who's an engineering student and president of RoboGirls at UNSW. Thanks to Anne Mossop and the University of New South Wales' Centre for Ideas team for hosting this event. And to sound engineer Mark Don, who is soon to retire after decades at the ABC. Thanks for all your beautiful work, Mark, on our programs and podcasts at Radio National. And uh, have a great retirement. Live it up. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or head over to the Science Friction website for more info as ever. I'll catch you next show. Ciao. Machines have time to think. G'day, Dr. Carl here. If you enjoyed that sciencey goodness, then maybe you'd like my podcast, Great Moments in Science. We cover dead brains coming back to life, mirror universes, and the truth about the global sand shortage. Search for Great Moments in Science in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.